Are you ready? You are now listening to the Solano Fit Podcast. Featuring health and fitness to change your life and inspiration to live your best. Here's your host, Hans O. Johnson. Good morning. It's a good morning to keep Solano fit. I want to do a quick update on the coronavirus. You know, there's been a lot of scares out there. There's been a lot of information, some of it misinformation, but, you know, it can be really hard to tell the difference. And so I want to, first off, thank Tatiana Dykes. She is the supervising nutritionist for the NEOP program, the Nutrition, Education, and Obesity program for Solano County, uh, for sharing some of the information and keeping a lot of us in the loop in terms of what's happening with the county. And so I've included on the website uh, three videos that I think are perhaps some of the best information there is on the coronavirus so, thus far. Um, you know the basics, right? This is the best time to have been healthy, but we know that part of being healthy is not freaking out and not completely uh, losing our composure. And so just remember that things like sleeping and, of course, washing your hands and eating healthy and taking in vitamin C with fruits and vegetables, drinking water are some of the most important things you can do to boost your immune system. Because just right now, we don't have a lot of answers. The coronavirus is still, they're calling it novel, which is to say that it's a different coronavirus than previous coronaviruses. So after this quick listen, if you have any further questions, be sure to check with the Solano Public Health website. I've posted their website information and contact information at solanofit.com as well. Okay, let's start with uh, what I thought was one of the best talks I've heard thus far on the coronavirus. And that's actually from a TEDx talk with Alana Sheikh. After that, we'll continue with Dr. Bela Matias who is the health officer and deputy director for Solano County Public Health. I want to lead here by talking a little bit about my credentials to bring this up with you. Because quite honestly, you really, really should not listen to any old person with an opinion about COVID-19. <laughs> so I've been working in global health for about 20 years. And my specific technical specialty is in health systems and what happens when health systems experience severe shocks. I've also worked in global health journalism. I've written about global health and biosecurity for newspapers and web outlets. And I published a book a few years back about the major global health threats facing us as a planet. I have supported and led epidemiology efforts that range from evaluating Ebola treatment centers to looking at transmission of tuberculosis in health facilities and doing avian influenza preparedness. I have a master's degree in international health. I'm not a physician, I'm not a nurse. My specialty isn't patient care or taking care of individual people. My specialty is looking at populations and health systems, what happens when diseases move on the large level. If we're ranking sources of global health expertise on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 is some random person ranting on Facebook, and 10 is the World Health Organization, I'd say you can probably put me at like a 7 or an 8. So keep that in mind as I talk to you. I'll start with the basics here, because I think that's gotten lost in some of the media noise around COVID-19. So COVID-19 is a coronavirus, and coronaviruses are a specific subset of virus, and they have some unique characteristic as viruses. They use RNA instead of DNA as their genetic material, and they're covered in spikes on the surface of the virus, and they use those spikes to invade cells. Those spikes are the corona in coronavirus. 
COVID-19 is known as a novel coronavirus because until December, we'd only heard of six coronaviruses. COVID-19 is the seventh. It's new to us. It just had its gene sequencing. It just got its name. That's why it's novel. If you remember SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, those were coronaviruses. And they're both called respiratory syndromes because that's what coronaviruses do. They go for your lungs. They don't make you puke. They don't make you bleed from the eyeballs. They don't make you hemorrhage. They head for your lungs. COVID-19 is no different. It causes a range of respiratory symptoms that go from stuff like a dry cough and a fever all the way out to fatal viral pneumonia. And that range of symptoms is one of the reasons it's actually been so hard to track this outbreak. Plenty of people get COVID-19, but so gently their symptoms are so mild that they don't even go to a healthcare provider. They don't register in the system. Children, in particular, have it very easy with COVID-19, which is something we should all be grateful for. Coronaviruses are zoonotic, which means that they transmit from animals to people. Some coronaviruses, like COVID-19, also transmit person to person. The person to person ones travel faster and travel farther, just like COVID-19. Zoonotic illnesses are really hard to get rid of because they have an animal reservoir. One example is avian influenza, where we can abolish it in farmed animals, in turkeys, in ducks, but it keeps coming back every year because it's brought to us by wild birds. You don't hear a lot about it because avian influenza doesn't transmit person to person, but we have outbreaks in poultry farms every year all over the world. COVID-19 most likely skipped from animals into people at a wild animal market in Wuhan, China. Now for the less basic parts. This is not the last major outbreak we're ever going to see. There's going to be more outbreaks, and there's going to be more epidemics. That's not a maybe, that's a given. And it's a result of the way that we as human beings are interacting with our planet. Human choices are driving us into a position where we're going to see more outbreaks. Part of that is about climate change and the way a warming climate makes the world more hospitable to viruses and bacteria. But it's also about the way we're pushing into the last wild spaces on our planet. When we burn and plow the Amazon rainforest so that we can have cheap land for ranching, when the last of the African bush gets converted to farms, when wild animals in China are hunted to extinction, human beings come into contact with wildlife populations that they've never come into contact with before, and those populations have new kinds of diseases, bacteria, viruses, stuff we're not ready for. Bats, in particular, have a knack for hosting illnesses that can infect people, but they're not the only animals that do it. So as long as we keep making our remote places less remote, the outbreaks are going to keep coming. We can't stop the outbreaks with quarantine or travel restrictions. That's everybody's first impulse. Let's stop the people from moving. Let's stop this outbreak from happening. But the fact is, it's really hard to get a good 
quarantine in place. It's really hard to set up travel restrictions. Even the countries that have made serious investments in public health, like the US and South Korea, can't get that kind of restriction in place fast enough to actually stop an outbreak instantly. There's logistical reasons for that, and there's medical reasons. If you look at COVID-19, right now, it seems like it could have a period where you're infected and show no symptoms that's as long as 24 days. So people are walking around with this virus showing no signs. They're not going to get quarantined. Nobody knows they need quarantining. There's also some real costs to quarantine and to travel restrictions. Humans are social animals and they resist when you try to hold them into place and when you try to separate them. We saw in the Ebola outbreak that as soon as you put a quarantine in place, people start trying to evade it. Individual patients, if they know there's a strict quarantine protocol, may not go for health care because they're afraid of the medical system or they can't afford care and they don't want to be separated from their family and friends. Politicians, government officials, when they know that they're going to get quarantined if they talk about outbreaks and cases, may conceal real information for fear of triggering a quarantine protocol. And of course, these kinds of evasions and dishonesty are exactly what it makes it so difficult to track a disease outbreak. We can get better at quarantines and travel restrictions, and we should, but they're not our only option, and they're not our best option for dealing with these situations. The real way for the long haul to make outbreaks less serious is to build the global health system, to support core healthcare functions in every country in the world so that all countries, even poor ones, are able to rapidly identify and treat new infectious diseases as they emerge. China's taken a lot of criticism for its response to COVID-19, but the fact is, what if COVID-19 had emerged in Chad which has three and a half doctors for every 100,000 people? What if it had emerged in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which just released its last Ebola patient from treatment? The truth is countries like this don't have the resources to respond to an infectious disease, not to treat people and not to report on it fast enough to help the rest of the world. I led an evaluation of Ebola treatment centers in Sierra Leone. And the fact is, the local doctors in Sierra Leone identified the Ebola crisis very quickly. First as a dangerous, contagious hemorrhagic virus, and then as Ebola itself. But having identified it, they didn't have the resources to respond. They didn't have enough doctors, they didn't have enough hospital beds, and they didn't have enough information about how to treat Ebola or how to implement infection control. Eleven doctors died in Sierra Leone of Ebola. The country only had 120 when the crisis started. By way of contrast, Dallas Baylor Medical Center has more than 1,000 physicians on staff. These are the kinds of inequities that kill people. First, they kill the poor people when the outbreaks start, and then they kill people all over the world when the outbreaks spread. If we really want to slow down these outbreaks and minimize their impact, we need to make sure that every country in the world has the capacity to identify new diseases, treat them, and report about them so they can share information. COVID-19 is going to be a huge burden on health systems. I'm not going to talk about death rates in this talk because, frankly, nobody can agree on the COVID-19 death rates right now. 
But one number we can agree on is that about 20% of people infected with COVID-19 are going to need hospitalization. Our US medical system can just barely cope with that. But what's gonna happen in Mexico? COVID-19 has also revealed some real weaknesses in our global health supply chains. Just-in-time ordering lean systems are great when things are going well. But in a time of crisis, what it means is we don't have any reserves. If a hospital or a country runs out of face masks or personal protective equipment, there's no big warehouse full of boxes that we can go to to get more. You have to order more from the supplier, you have to wait for them to produce it, and you have to wait for them to ship it, generally from China. That's a time lag at a time when it's most important to move quickly. If we'd been perfectly prepared for COVID-19, China would have identified the outbreak faster. They would have been ready to provide care to infected people without having to build new buildings. They would have shared honest information with citizens so that we didn't see these crazy rumors spreading on social media in China. And they would have shared information with global health authorities so that they could start reporting to national health systems and getting ready for when the virus spread. National health systems would then have been able to stockpile the protective equipment they needed and train healthcare providers on treatment and infection control. We'd have science-based protocols for what to do when things happen like cruise ships have infected patients. And we'd have real information going out to people everywhere so we wouldn't see embarrassing, shameful incidents of xenophobia like Asian-looking people getting attract, attacked on the street in Philadelphia. But even with all that in place, we would still have outbreaks. The choices we're making about how we occupy this planet make that inevitable. As far as we have an expert consensus on COVID-19, it's this. Here in the US and globally, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. We're seeing cases of human transmission that aren't from returning travel, that are just happening in the community. And we're seeing people infected with COVID-19 when we don't even know where the infection came from. Those are signs of an outbreak that's getting worse, not an outbreak that's under control. It's depressing, but it's not surprising. Global health experts, when they talk about the scenario of new viruses, this is one of the scenarios that they look at. We all hoped we'd get off easy, but when experts talk about viral planning, this is the kind of situation and the way they expect the virus to move. I wanna close here with some personal advice. Wash your hands. Wash your hands a lot. I know you already wash your hands a lot because you're not disgusting, but wash your hands even more. Set up cues and routines in your life to get you to wash your hands. Wash your hands every time you enter and leave a building. Wash your hands when you go into a meeting and when you come out of a meeting. Get rituals there based around hand washing. Sanitize your phone. You touch that phone with your dirty, unwashed hands all the time. I know you take it into the bathroom with you. So sanitize your phone and consider not using it as often in public. Maybe TikTok and Instagram could be home things only. Don't touch your face. Don't rub your eyes. Don't bite your fingernails. Don't wipe your nose on the back of your hand. I mean, don't do that anyway, because gross. <laughs> don't wear a face mask. 
Face masks are for sick people and healthcare providers. If you're sick, your face mask holds in all your coughing and sneezing and protects the people around you. And if you're a healthcare provider, your face mask is one tool in a set of tools called personal protective equipment that you're trained to use so that you can give patient care and not get sick yourself. If you're a regular healthy person wearing a face mask, it's just making your face sweaty. <laughs> Leave the face masks in stores for the doctors and the nurses and the sick people. If you think you have symptoms of COVID-19, stay home, call your doctor for advice. If you're diagnosed with COVID-19, remember it's generally very mild. And if you're a smoker, right now is the best possible time to quit smoking. I mean, if you're a smoker right now is always the best possible time to quit smoking. But if you're a smoker and you're worried about COVID-19, I guarantee that quitting is absolutely the best thing you can do to protect yourself from the worst impacts of COVID-19. COVID-19 is scary stuff at a time when pretty much all of our news feels like scary stuff. And there's a lot of bad but appealing options for dealing with it. Panic, xenophobia, agoraphobia, authoritarianism. Oversimplified lies that make us think that hate and fury and loneliness are the solution to outbreaks. But they're not. They just make us less prepared. There's also a boring but useful set of options that we can use in response to outbreaks. Things like improving healthcare here and everywhere, investing in health infrastructure and disease surveillance so that we know when the new diseases come, building health systems all over the world, looking at strengthening our supply chains so they're ready for emergencies, and better education so we're capable of talking about disease outbreaks and the mathematics of risk without just blind panic. We need to be guided by equity here, because in this situation, like so many, equity is actually in our own self-interest. So thank you so much for listening to me today, and can I be the first one to tell you, wash your hands when you leave the theater. If you're reading what I'm reading and watching what I'm watching, then you know that, of course, washing your hands and not touching your face are all of the things or just some of the things that are really helpful to protect yourself. Also, social distancing. If you haven't seen it, a lot of leagues and uh, amusement parks and even schools are starting to shut down completely. Uh, but you have to think to yourself that whatever you can do to protect your immune system is what's most imperative because really your immune system is all we got. We don't have any sort of vaccines. There are no proven remedies right now. And so it's really just about what you can do to protect yourself. And so that includes everything that we talked about before. And of course, uh, really trying to keep the stress levels down because you know how stress is uh, completely debilitating to your immunology. One of the speakers in one of the videos said, um, not scare you out of your wits, but scare you into your wits. And so you're doing things that will increase your preparedness so that you're able to be as prepared as possible if, in fact, society is quarantined for a month or more. Uh, next, we'll hear from Dr. Bela Matias. He is the health officer and deputy director for Solano County Public Health. He gives some updates on uh, not only the cruise ships that have docked, and he also gives some really important information in terms of what we know about the virality of the disease to this point. And the other person that you'll hear on the audio is Solano County Supervisor Erin Hannigan. She's the one asking most of the questions uh, in this audio clip. Some great information. And with that, I'll call Dr. Bela Matias. Morning again, Board. Bela Matias, Health Officer. Um, I wanted to give an update on where we stand uh, with respect to the novel coronavirus outbreak. 
Um, starting with uh, just an update on where we are with the disembarkation of the passengers on the, the Grand Princess, which as you know is docked at the Port of Oakland. Uh, yesterday, uh, they began screening and offloading individuals from that vessel. Um, a little over two dozen individuals, um, as, as they were screened, were found to be positive with symptoms that are consistent with this disease, so they were taken directly by ambulance to hospitals uh, both in the Bay Area and further inland uh, in order to be evaluated under isolation. In addition, uh, just under 145 uh, of those passengers were uh, brought over to Travis Air Force Base yesterday, uh, and they are, are being housed in the quarantine portion of the base that has previously housed several cohorts of other evacuees. Uh, in addition, there was a, a group of individuals that yesterday they were repatriated directly to Canada. Uh, today, um, the plan continues to screen every. The plan is to continue screening everyone, and then and then taking them to an appropriate destination. Those who are non-U.S. citizens are being flown uh, from a secure location at Oakland Airport back directly to their home countries. Uh, for non-California U.S. citizens, they are being flown to base to a base in Texas and a base in Georgia uh, in order to be held under quarantine. Uh, and for those who are California residents, uh, which numbers a little over 950 on board that vessel, they are being brought to Travis Air Force Base uh, until capacity is reached and then overflow uh, of it, those individuals would involve one of the other bases in California, uh, most likely Miramar. Uh, apart from that evacuee effort, which is a federal mission very similar to what happened with the prior federal missions in terms of just evacuating people and holding them under quarantine, um, there is the ongoing outbreak in our Bay Area, and in, including Solano County. We recently we received the ability to do local testing um, on Friday, validated the, the test over the weekend. We now, as of yesterday, possess the ability to do testing locally as well. Um, that will be a double-edged sword. It will certainly increase the speed with which we can get results, but it's invariably going to lead to substantially higher numbers of cases in our county. It's simply because we haven't been able to test that we don't have a, a more accurate picture of coronavirus in Solano County. And I think we need to be prepared that as we, as we begin to do more testing, more individuals will be identified with the disease. Um, the, other, the other thing that's happening is that we are working with partners throughout the county to assess gatherings on a case-by-case -case basis to, to uh, provide recommendations on whether those gatherings should go forward or be canceled. Um, are there any questions? Um, well, I think the in terms of um, can we talk about the first cohort and and where they where they are and okay so going so, home yeah. and so this actually represents the fourth cohort of evacuees okay. to Travis. As you may recall, the first two cohorts were plane loads of individuals that were State Department associated. From that combined group of individuals. Uh, we had five people who had to be removed from base for evaluation, and all of those proved to be negative. So the entire two plane loads of the, of the State Department evacuees that were housed at Travis were negative for coronavirus, uh, and they have, have all since been released from quarantine and returned to their homes. The third cohort, the third plane load, were, were evacuees from the Diamond Princess, which was a cruise ship that was being held in quarantine off Yokohama in Japan, and those individuals um, 
had a, a much, much higher rate of illness among them. We actually had to evaluate over 30 people from that cohort. More than two dozen of them were found to be positive for coronavirus, and they were in isolation. Some of them continue to be in isolation in hospitals in the area until they clear their virus. But that, the bulk of that group was released back home uh, last week. Um, there, were, there were six individuals who had to stay longer because they had had more recent exposures to their roommate, for example, who ended up having coronavirus. Um, but my understanding is that that entire cohort now has been repatriated to home. So the first three um, sets, cohorts of evacuees, have ended their quarantine and, and returned home, except for those who had illness, and, and, or not illness, but in most cases they were asymptomatic, but they were uh, producing the virus. And so they had to be held in, in isolation until they were able to be cleared. Most of them have been, but we continue to have about a half a dozen of them at area hospitals that have not yet cleared. Can you speak to um, the, the number of folks who may ha who have tested positive for coronavirus and whether they have been asymptomatic or symptomatic and what some of the general um, outcomes have been? So the individuals among the evacuees, with the exception of two who were symptomatic, all of the positives were asymptomatic. And so their health condition was never in jeopardy. Uh, they were simply sent to hospitals because they needed to be in isolation, and the isolation rooms in the hospitals were the only facility available for that purpose. So their health uh, was and continues to be fine. The two that were symptomatic have recovered, um, and, but they are positive for coronavirus, so they continue to have to be hospitalized as well until they can clear the virus. Fortunately, no um, difficulties emerged in terms of patient handling. All the patient cases were uh, essentially healthy or fully recovered. Um, by, you know, by contrast, within our own community, we had a community-acquired case that was identified. Uh, that individual continues to be uh, hospitalized. There were uh, several healthcare workers at North Bay who were, who were exposed and became ill with coronavirus as well. Um, for the most part, those healthcare workers that were exposed uh, were placed on quarantine and have been released from quarantine. So, so virtually all of the, uh, the quarantined individuals have been returned uh, to work. Uh, some of them, however, were isolated because they had symptoms. And among them, we continue to, to make sure that they recover fully before they can return. But the, the total number of healthcare workers impacted at North Bay was over 100. Um, but the, the vast majority are back at work. Uh, the exception are the three cases of illness who are continuing to be monitored. Two of them, unfortunately, have required hospitalization, although um, they, they appear to be in, in, uh, stable. But, but you know, the disease reminds that it can be quite significant. Um, we've also had multiple other cases since then identified among Solano residents, pre uh, predominantly f uh, people that were on the Grand Princess's first voyage down to Mexico, not the one to Hawaii, which is the one in the Port of Oakland now. Same vessel, same crew. Um, that group of individuals, those, those individuals are, are all three hospitalized and positive for coronavirus, and they remain hospitalized in isolation until they can clear their virus. Can you um, just define what you mean by saying cleared their virus? So at the, the initial indications were that, uh, that uh, well, the initial belief on the part of the CDC was that until people stop having virus in their respiratory symptom, system, that they may be infectious to others. And so we are required to, to hold people in isolation until they are not producing any virus in their respiratory tract for two consecutive days. That's the, been the clearance standard. Uh, good news out of Germany yesterday is that that may be unnecessary because it appears quite clear in their data that people stop having infectious virus 
um, within a couple of days of ending their symptoms. It's, it's really more from the onset of symptoms for about 10 days that people are able to have virus emitted that can cause infection. And the, the question that you can ask is, well, why are we finding virus that's not infectious? It's because the test only looks for the evidence of the RNA in the virus, the nucleic acid material, and that doesn't by itself cause infectiousness. The entire virus has to be there, the intact virus, and that's not what we test for. But there is a way to test for viability, infectiousness, by culturing it. And so that was the critical testing that was done in Germany. We're hoping that'll be repeated by CDC as quickly as possible. Because that, that's, that's a, at this point, a big game changer. That means that we can focus on people while they're sick mm -hmm. and not have to worry about it beyond that time period um, and not have to keep testing people every day for what can be months that they are shedding evidence of the virus, but that virus is not infectious. Um, I've read that 80% of the folks who have tested positive for coronavirus are asymptomatic. Is that what you're hearing? Is that's, that's the best so. guess. You know, when this disease was first discovered in Wuhan, uh, it was discovered because people were dying unexpectedly. So the, the, there was an over-representation in the initial group of people of people dying and people being hospitalized. And then it became rapidly overwhelming in Wuhan, and they never had the opportunity to test people with mild illness or no illness. So they, their impression was that everybody with this disease was, was severely ill and or dying. So those initial reports of death rates were based on a, a very selected, filtered group of people. Then subsequent outbreaks in other countries, again, that's how it's discovered. But then in, in, in some of the other countries, like South Korea, in Italy, um, in Spain, and in Japan, they've actually been able to test people with milder illness. And they learned that a lot of the people who have coronavirus don't have severe illness, don't require hospitalization. And then we learned from the repatriated individuals from the Diamond Princess that a very large percentage of people have no symptoms but carry the virus. So it's, it's obvious that like with other respiratory diseases, at the top of the pyramid you have people who have serious illness, then you have a larger group, maybe 10 times as many with mild illness, and then, then again a, a much larger group who are asymptomatic. But that pyramid is normal for all respiratory diseases that we know of. Uh, so it's not unusual to have learned that. Mm -hmm. uh, the impact of that is, unfortunately, that most of the people who can convey the virus are not showing symptoms that would cause you to think that they have the disease. That's why it can spread so easily in our communities. Um, but the other good news of that is that most of the people infected are not going to have a bad outcome. Most of them are going to do well. Problem is that those who do most poorly are the ones that, are, that tend to be older and more medically fragile. So this is, uh, you know, this, the cohort of individuals that are already fragile are the ones who have the, the worst outcomes from this virus. And that, that's why it's really incumbent upon us to make sure we protect them most from exposure. And that's what I was going to ask you next was um, uh, who, we should all be cautious, right? Wash our hands with soap uh, and water and, you know, avoid contact with people who are presenting themselves as being not well and um, avoid touching your face is a, another one of the um, uh, cautionary tales we've heard. Um, I, so those who are uh, more sensitive to the illness, uh, you know, we've heard about in the state of Washington in the uh, care home. And can you talk about, you know, really, you know, where does it concentrate itself in terms of those who are going to have a poor outcome? So um, by far and away, the, the worst outcomes occur in individuals over the age of about 70, 75 who have underlying chronic health issues. Okay. And it's higher still among those who are institutionalized in that age group. So people in a long-term care facility um, are probably the most vulnerable 
But then you know, we also need to worry about people in assisted living scenarios, in, in elder home, el elder living, congregate elder living scenarios. Um, uh, so th those are the folks that I think are at highest risk. But another group that we're very worried about are the homeless. The homeless are inherently much more medically fragile as well, independent of their age. So medical fragility, in, in other words, having underlying heart, lung uh, issues, problems with your kidneys, things like diabetes, do increase your risk of having a bad outcome, of getting sick, hospitalized, potentially dying. So those are the folks we, that the data show we have to put most of our energy uh, into protecting and that we are trying to do so with here. Now, I don't want to suggest that that means everybody else is okay. I mean, this is a, this is a, a disease uh, for which we have no immunity. It's going to make us sick. Um, and, and so we need to take, what, as you suggested, we need to take seriously the idea of not in, of not spreading our respiratory droplets or engaging in people's respiratory droplets. And you know, if a person coughs or sneezes on you, there's not much you can do, obviously. So it's really important that people cough and sneeze into their sleeve or into a tissue and not spread the virus that way. But the other primary mode of spread is, is through our hands, you know, interacting with each other. And a person with illness brings their hand to their mouth, they shake your hand, you bring your hand to your mouth. So the most powerful tool you have to protect yourself is to not bring your hand to your mouth after interacting with other people to your face, really your mouth, nose, your eyes, not bring it to your face without first washing it or using a hand sanitizer after interacting with others. So there is, a, there is that opportunity that we have to protect ourselves from most spread. I'm not going to say all of it because coughs and sneezes occur, but most of the spread we can actually um, protect ourselves from. And if we do that um, faithfully, then it's not just coronavirus, but flu and all the other respiratory diseases that circulate during this time of year that we are protecting ourselves from. Thank you for that. Um, I know there is concern in the community. Uh, this is why we've asked Dr. Bela Matches to be here to, to uh, share this information with all of you here, uh, make sure it gets um, into the papers as well. Uh, and we are um, gonna be looking at a more uh, public um, opportunity to be able to share how this is all working out here in uh, Solano County and specifically as it relates to the Grand Princess. I can tell you many folks who are on the Grand Princess are Solano County residents, and we want to be uh, empathetic to them and their needs uh, while they uh, go through this 14 days, if not longer, quarantine period uh, and be supportive. So, Doctor, thank you so much. I appreciate you thank sharing you very the much. information. Okay, well, that does it for this episode of Solano Fit. It's a little bit off our typical schedule, but I thought that it was important information uh, to get out to Solano County for those of you who hadn't seen it either on YouTube or through some other platform. Our best to you all, wishing you 100% health and 0% exposure. May you and the generation above you or the generation beneath you stay as healthy as possible. Remember, if you have anything that you'd like to share, you can do so either on Instagram at SolanoFit or also Twitter at SolanoFit as well. We're definitely interested in your thoughts, your comments, and what you think can be done to keep Solano residents healthier and safe. Solano County in general, as you realize, has gotten a lot of attention recently, given Travis Air Force Base and the like. But our prayers go to everyone who was quarantined from Travis Air Force Base and anyone who came into exposure with them, but also for you as well. So wishing you all the best. Stay healthy, stay fit, and we'll beat this all together. Talk to you soon.